Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better, and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Noor Siddiqui, the CEO of Orchid Health. At Orchid, they're developing advanced preconception screening to help families safely and naturally mitigate their family's genetic predispositions. In doing so, they're building a future where couples can have the healthiest child possible. Let's jump right in. Noor, thank you so much for, for coming on Build the Future. Very, very stoked to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me about the future you're building at Orchid. What's the vision? Yeah, so the vision at Orchid is actually pretty simple. We want every couple to be able to have a healthy baby. And right now what's going on is is actually pretty crazy. So people are going into the most consequential, important decision of their entire life, you know, having a child completely blind. So they have no visibility into their own genetic predispositions and what they might pass on to their child. So what we've developed at Orchid is a new type of genetic test that allows couples to, you know, just, you know, submit a saliva sample and, and get a report back that alerts them about what, what genetic risks they're passing on to their child for the most common conditions. So things like schizophrenia, heart disease, diabetes, you know, all of the, the top conditions that parents are worried about. And instead of most genetic tests where, you know, there's not really um, something that you can do about it, there, there is, there is an actionable component to Orchid's results. So, um, and, and that actionable component is, is embryo testing. So we can actually quantify the level of genetic risk for each embryo and, and help uh, that couple that previously, you know, couldn't conceive confidently, you know, was, was worried about passing on these genetic risks. They can actually uh, take action and mitigate risks for their family. And uh, that, so that's what, that's what we're really excited about at Orchid, this, this possibility of a future where, you know, life doesn't have to be interrupted by disease, like this possibility that parents can actually help their children have, uh, you know, a better chance at a healthy life. How does this contrast to what's available today? The, the tests that exist today in the preconception or reproductive setting are looking at really rare conditions. So they're called carrier screening and they're looking at recessive, really rare recessive conditions where um, it's sort of a one in 1000 or one in a million chance that uh, an individual partner is a carrier. And um the other thing is that actually both partners have to be carriers in, or, in order, since it's a recessive condition, for the child to have a chance of inheriting the disease. And I think it's, you know, it's really impressive and amazing that these tests have caught on because now for this like very small fraction of people who are carriers, they can be alerted early and they can take action. They can go through IVF and they can prevent their child from getting cystic fibrosis. They can prevent their child from getting, you know, spinal muscular atrophy, these like really major destructive conditions that can, um, you know, really like result in, in uh, a, a child actually not even making it to adulthood. So we're basically building on the progress that's been made in genetics over the last decade. So a decade ago, when these carrier screens and uh, sort of old school genetic tests came online, 
that's all we knew. All we knew was here's a, a you know a couple thousand rare mutations that cause really severe diseases. But now over the, over the last decade, we've built up these data sets where we have hundreds of thousands of sequenced individuals paired with physician verified diagnoses. And what that data set allows us to do is for the first time ever to sort of realize the goal of genomic medicine, which is that now we can measure genetic susceptibility for the most common conditions. And the diseases that you and I care about, things like heart disease and uh, schizophrenia and diabetes, they're not driven by a single gene, right? They're driven by, by millions of genes, millions of variants across the genome. And it wasn't possible 10 years ago to be able to build accurate models because we didn't have enough sequence individuals to say, okay, we're going to run a study and find out these are the variants that are actually uh, correlated or connected to, to the disease. So now that we have that data, now that we can build these you know, highly predictive models, um, I think that the most valuable and um, high yield use case is, is to give that information to parents so that when they're taking this big step of bringing a new human into the world, they can you know, prevent them from uh, you know, inheriting those, those same variants that, that uh, led to disease in their, in their own family. So, so taking this, this newfound technology, this newfound developments in genetics and kind of shifting the, the lens from like a treatment we're going to, Hey, we're going to try and like reactively solve these problems to being a bit more proactive. So parents can go in ahead of time and say, Hey, we're not sure if we're going to, you know, carry, if we have for a carry of this, this disease, you know, if the two partners are, if their genetics combined it, that like will cause problems. It's kind of giving them, yeah, you're giving them the control to be able to go say, Hey, no, we want to make sure our child is as healthy as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, just looking at sort of the landscape today, you have more than 100 million Americans with uh, a chronic disease, right? And it's, it's uh, well, what's happening to these people is that they're leashed to a drug for life. And in the, in the best case, they're leashed to a drug for life, right? We have no cures, we have no ability to solve the, the root cause of their problem. And uh, that's great for drug companies, right? They're able to, you know, bill you for, for, for medication that you're going to be, um, you know, you're literally leashed to for life. But um, it's obviously not great for the person who's actually living with that chronic chronic illness. So the core uh, idea behind gene therapy is that you know, someone has a, a defective gene and then you can inject using a, a viral vector, a functional copy of that gene. And that's really impressive. And it, it does help a really small group of people actually have a sincere cure, but gene therapy costs literally a million dollars usually per, per, per case. And it's, it's also not a sure bet, right? Getting that treatment, there's, there's people who have really severe you know, immune responses to that, uh, to that therapy. So what I think is, you know, sort of in contrast to that, in contrast to, to drugs or, or therapy is the idea that, you know, you could just never get the disease at all by just having a lower genetic risk is something that I think that has a lot of potential, but has been uh, underinvested in, right? So now for the first time ever, since you can actually measure, measure and stratify risk accurately, it's, it's sort of come online as a possibility. And sort of, there's been a, there's a sort of a convergence of technologies that make this possible, right? We, for the first time ever, we can actually predict risk accurately, but you had to pair that with the ability on the single cell sequencing side to be able to call those variants accurately in an embryo. And that's also a capability that hasn't really come online, except for the last, uh, you know, I think basically three years, right? There's been billions of dollars that have been pumped in actually by the um, cancer immunotherapy uh, industry, because they're looking at trying to figure out how do we make, build more um, targeted therapies for cancer. So they've spent a bunch of time on the chemistry and, uh, you know, the bioinformatics around getting high signal data off of single cell uh, sequencing. So it's really cool to be able to apply that to the, to the embryo testing space so that you can basically take these two technologies that are on the cutting edge and be able to apply them into a full system where uh, couples and future families can actually benefit. 
So let's dive into the, the kind of the embryo side of things. So with ORCID, you have the, the preconception report, which kind of gives parents the information about kind of their risks. And then the next piece is giving them like the ability to kind of do something about it with the embryo report. Can you tell me a little bit more about like what that is and then, or rather kind of what's been going on in the, the IVF space? Sure. Yes, I guess just to back up about, you know, even what is IVF? So IVF, it stands for in vitro fertilization. And the way the process works is that um, women are given hormones over a couple of weeks that allows the eggs in their ovaries to mature and for a doctor to go in and retrieve those eggs and then fertilize them in a dish with their partner's sperm. And once those, um, so zygote would be the first stage of, of an embryo that's like day one. And then on day five, it becomes a blastocyst. It has about a hundred cells. That embryo, um, you can take five cells off of that embryo, sequence those, that, that DNA. And then um, you know, what work is doing for the first time ever is returning these much more high, like ultra high resolution, comprehensive reports on on what the health risks are for each of the embryos. So right now what's going on in, in, in IVF is that it's basically a beauty contest to decide which, uh, which embryo to implant. And what I mean by beauty contest is there's this thing called uh, morphology, which is basically how does the embryo look? And there's, there's a scale called, called uh, Gartner grading. And that's what uh, embryologists are currently using to decide which embryo to um, implant first. And yeah, I guess uh, I don't want to uh, be too negative about, about Gartner grading. Obviously morphology is a very legitimate way to, um, you know, select which embryo to implant, but for you know the vast majority of parents who are who are, are suffering from a specific disease, um, you know they're they're much more interested in in trying to mitigate risk for something like schizophrenia than okay we want the you know best morphology uh, embryo embryo. So basically, right now they're kind of choosing randomly, and what we're doing is we're allowing um, the couple and the clinical team to to be able to uh, prioritize based on the, the healthiest embryo. So okay, this morphology like what are they actually looking at, right? So you have all the embryos in a dish or like in a kind of on a plate. I don't, I don't know. They're literally in a Petri dish. I've actually been in the IVF lab and it's super, I don't know. It's just a stunning process, right? You see you see the eggs coming out of uh, a woman's ovaries and there's the embryologist sort of like fishing them out of a, of a dish because basically the longer that the eggs are exposed to, to blood, the more um, eggs that will um, actually atrophy and die. So you have to be really quick about it. So basically you have, you have the, the doctor in the, uh, in the room, like sucking out the, uh, the ovarian, you know, the, the fluid that, that contains the eggs. And then you know, a small amount of blood is getting into that dish. And then you, you go into the, um, the IVF lab and the embryologist is like, has this cup and is like very quickly fishing out uh, the embryos at, at top speed to make sure that, you know, n- none of these uh, eggs are lost and that they can all be used to create embryos. But yeah, sorry, you wanted to talk about morphology. So then they have them in the, in these Petri dishes. That's fascinating, by the way. And then, and then they're kind of choosing which one to implant, like, is implant the right word here? Yeah, yeah, implant is the right word, yeah. Yeah, okay. So they're choosing which one to implant based on, as you said, like the way it looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, so what morphology is, is sort of, so an, an embryo has a, a trophectoderm. So basically the trophectoderm is the exterior of the of the cell that becomes the placenta. So there's just a grading system that looks at basically, I don't want to use too much jargon, like ICM and polar body, but basically there's, there's all these different parts, there's all these different parts of an embryo. And th- there's a way to basically measure how, um, how likely it is to uh, transfer just based on like a visual inspection. So they just have, they, they've, you know, transferred you know, hundreds of thousands of, of um, embryos at this point during IVF. So they, they've just developed a system that says just based on a visual infection, you know, how well is this embryo doing compared to another one in terms of just, you know, how, how do the different features of the cell look? And yeah, that's, I guess, the TLDR of what morphology is. So it's a visual check versus anything that's based on like the underlying quality of 
the organism in the petri dish. It's like, oh, this one looks good. Let's go with this. Versus, mm, this one has a. This one's probably going to be better, like the best for this couple, right? There is actually existing genetic testing during IVF right now. So that's called, um, it's called PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. And um, that testing primarily looks at aneuploidy. So the number of chromosomes that are in an embryo. You could think of the number of chromosomes as sort of like, let's say you had a, a textbook and you just looked at how many chapters are there. Oh, there's like 13 chapters. So obviously in the case of chromosomes, there's, we have, we, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. So the only thing that that genetic test is evaluating is, are there the correct number of chapters in this book? Yes or no? That's the extent of it. So basically what ORCID is doing is we're saying, okay, instead of just looking at the number of chapters, let's read the entire book. So we're sequencing the entire genome of this embryo and saying that, okay, of course, we're going to tell you, do we have the correct number of chromosomes? But also we're going to tell you what this embryo's propensity is for um, every disease that we have a good predictor for so that uh, this couple is able to you know, mitigate risk for a disease that either they themselves have, or they've, they've seen family members suffer from. And I think that that's a that's what's really, really powerful. And I think that is um, super exciting about what we're doing. So we're basically taking an existing technology, existing process, and we're really um, up-leveling it so that um, more, more families can benefit. I, I want to zoom out on the trend here. Like, it seems like the technology in in vitro fertilization space is like developed quite a lot over the last 15, 20 years, and more, more families are choosing to have kids later. What do you think some of the, the second, third order effects of, of this will be? We now have the ability to preserve like people in, you know, certain like places like freezing eggs or freezing sperm. They're like, cool, let's have kids in like mid thirties or forties. How do you think about that? And how do you think it changed? It's like, it changes the way, way we will operate and the way we'll think about having, having families. I think it's really exciting because it just gives people more freedom, right? Yeah. It can be really stressful. It can be really painful to, to say that, oh, like my reproductive window is super short. And uh, I think it's obviously especially stressful for women because their, you know, their career and their education is like competing with this, um, you know, the exact same time that they're, they're actually the, the most fertile and, you know, it'll be easiest for them to have children. So I think it's really exciting to be able to, you know, give women more freedom and just really every couple more choice around, okay, when is actually the, the right time to start a family? And for, you know, obviously for some people it's, you know, in their, in their early twenties, but for a lot of people, it's not. And it's, uh, you know, it's unfair that, you know, f- for all of human history, it hasn't been possible, but it's cool that, that now it's becoming, um, you know, more and more the norm. I mean, we're seeing, you know, many, many companies that like Snapchat, Facebook, Google, all these companies are, are covering egg freezing. They're covering multiple cycles of IVF. The, the coverage varies drastically by not even just by company in the U.S., but also just internationally, right? So you have places like Israel where they really prioritize, you know, coverage for IVF. So IVF is free until women are 44 and you see the highest utilization in the world. So I think that it's sort of interesting how culturally different people prioritize the ability to have a family, right? So in the U.S., it's kind of sad that, you know, we don't take, we don't consider infertility uh, a disease, right? So 15% of couples are infertile. And I think it's unconscionable that basically the, the people who are able to have children, it's just a function of, of, of income, right? So do you privately have enough money to fund your uh, IVF treatment? And I think that that's you know, completely unfair. It should be the case that anyone who wants to start a family uh, should be able to, and it shouldn't be limited by, oh, you know, you're, you're sort of more economically advantaged than someone else who just got unlucky because they were, unfer- uh, they were infertile. And I think that that's really a lot of the same motivation that drove me to, to start ORCID is that I saw in my family, you know, some people just get unlucky genetically, right? It's like, oh, they didn't win the genetic lottery at birth to just have great genes that didn't lead to disease, right? So it's, it's, it's crazy and scary that you could have a, you know, an errant genetic program just running inside you that just can explode at a certain age and lead to something 
you know, in, in my mom's case, you know, she, she found out that she was, um, uh, that she had a degenerative retinal condition that, you know, led her to going blind throughout her life. So it's sort of, it's sort of terrifying that you don't control your genetics, right? They lead to these um, really terrifying outcomes. And, you know, when you're, when you're having a child, there's already so much uncertainty and the ability to have a little bit, um, a little bit more control and a little bit more knowledge about, um, you know, this is how my genetics is going to impact my child is something that uh, uh, I just think is, it, we feel super humbled and fortunate to be able to, to bring to, to families. I think on the, the, the resources and kind of the, the timing of families is, is a really interesting kind of like idea space to explore. Cause on one hand you could take like a, a pessimistic view and be like, Oh, the reason that all these big companies are, are promoting this is so that people can stay in the workforce longer and like they can get more resource out of, you know, everyone staying sort of like leaving to go raise families or like work less. It's like, Oh, cool. It's work till you're 40, work till you're 45 and then go have kids. Uh, but, but on the other end, it's, it's incredible because like we live in a time where we want having a family to be like a very intentional choice. And we want people to have the resources to be able to like kind of raise their kids and give them like good educations and good kind of like attention and love and support. And like people don't always have, people are different points in their lives where they'll have different resources where they're able to do that. So it's like, it's an interesting kind of balance. Where do you fall on the spectrum of like, you know, is it a good thing that people are having families later or is it just a condition of the culture we're living in? Yeah, I think it's really interesting how um, there's always this uh, moral imperative that's put on decisions, right? It's like, oh, is it is it good or bad, right? And I think that it's sort of um, independent of that. I just think that there's it's actually just just cool that there's choice. I don't think that it's it's good that someone has a, a family young or someone has a family old. I think it's just super um, specific to that family and that person. And I think that that's like a, an orientation that I wish more people had, where it's not about like let's look at something that's happening and is it good or bad. It's sort of like really contextual, right? It's really specific to, to that person where they are in life. Do they have the right partner? Do they have the right career? Do they, you know, it's like, I think that it, we're so conditioned by society to like take anything that happens and say, oh, is this good or is this bad? Like, should this happen or shouldn't this happen? And it's actually more about, you know, leaving it up to the to the individual, to, to the person who's actually experiencing this big decision. So I, I'm actually just for more choice across the board, uh, everywhere so that um you know it's it's up it's up to the to the individual to decide what's right for them and i think that it should, there should be less stigma and taboo from you know your friends and society about oh you should do this or you should do that it's it should be more up to to the individual to decide what's right for them what are some of the other misconceptions in this space how else do you wish people thought about this the work you're doing at orchid or the the reproductive space differently so one um, one huge myth is that uh, you know difficulty conceiving is mostly the woman's fault. I think that a lot of people think fertility is like a people think of fertility as like a women's issue, and uh, you know roughly a third of cases are, are due to female infertility, and the another third is due to male factor infertility, and the last third is actually unexplained. We don't actually know what the true cause is. So I think that you know we should really shift the conversation about fertility to like, oh, this is like a the woman's fault or a woman's issue to something that's really there's, there's a male and female component. So sperm quality, for example, is something that is really it, basically the, the idea of testing sperm quality is super important, and most people don't do it. And sperm quality actually declines with age, just like you know female egg quality. There's an epi epidemiologist. Her name is uh, Shauna Swan. And she's actually done, she's actually written a book and uh, around a study that she did that was measuring uh, male factor infertility. And 
what she found was that sperm co- sperm counts in the West had plummeted by 60% between 1973 and 2011. And she thinks that following current projections, sperm counts are set to reach zero in 2045. And that's obviously, you know, terrifying. It literally, you know, threatens um, human survival. And basically there's... Uh, we're not totally sure what the exact cause of this is, but what what Swan is suggesting is the cause is this sort of these chemicals that are everywhere that are found in plastics, cosmetics, and pesticides that are endocrine disruptors. And these chemicals in our environment are uh, disrupting our normal hormonal balance and causing basically various degrees of reproductive havoc in men. So um, yeah, I think that's something that more people should know about. Like more more men should be freezing and testing their sperm and making sure that, you know, when when they want to have kids that um, their sperm is actually in good shape there's always this question, like, are you playing God when you are selecting which embryo to, to implant? What are people getting wrong about this? Why is that the wrong way, wrong way to think about it? So I think what's um, interesting about that response is that it sort of negates or ignores what humans have been doing since since the beginning of technology, the beginning of history, right? Like, why did we create roads? Why did we create cities? Why did we, you know, start saying that, you know, when someone breaks their leg, that we shouldn't just quote unquote, like leave it up to God to see if it heals, right? Like we put a cast on them. We try and, you know, fix, we try and fix things. Like humans have always tried to reduce suffering and to um, sort of create more more prosperity, help us have lo- longer lives, right? So, I mean, in, in the beginning, you know, our, our lives were, our human life, human life was short and brutish, right? We sort of lived to like, just past reproductive age, like 30, 35, 40, right? And then we invented farming, we invented agriculture. We did all of these things to make our lives better, easier, longer. So I think that, um, you know, in in the case of genetic testing, this is just one more um, step in that direction, right? So now we have this new knowledge of of what genes are going to be conferring risk for certain diseases. So it sort of begs the question, why wouldn't you as a parent try and understand those risks for yourself so you can mitigate them to the extent that you can with lifestyle changes, meaning, you know, changing your diet, changing your exercise, going and advocating for yourself at the doctor and saying, I want to get more preventative screening earlier because I know I have elevated genetic risk. Right. And on the second side of that is like, you know, when you're, when you're conceiving, why would it be the case that you're trying to mitigate risk for something really inconsequential, like lunch, right? When you're having lunch, you routinely go check Yelp, you check Google reviews and you make sure that this place has it, you know, isn't going to give you food poisoning and that, you know, your friends say that, you know, this is the best sandwich you're ever going to have so why is it for an extremely inconsequential decision like lunch you're, you're you're super motivated to collect data but for the most consequential decision of your life which is having a child why would you not try and understand what, what risks your child is going to inherit right i mean people love to say you know diamonds are forever but uh you know the reality is your genetics are forever, right? Until until CRISPR, until we're able to um, have have gene therapies that really are, allow us to upgrade ourselves. Like you know, you're, the genes that you have are with you for life. So, um, as a parent, I think that the greatest gift that uh, any parent could possibly give their 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 child is the possibility to have a healthy life. I mean, there's already so much suffering in the world. You know, you can get hit by a car, you can you know lose your job. Um, you know, unfortunately, social security doesn't look like it's in a great place. So, you know, why wouldn't you as a parent try and do this one? simple thing, which is to understand, you know, your, your child's uh, health risks and trying to mitigate the chance that they get a disease to the extent that that's, that's up to their genetics. Um, so yeah, I guess that, that, that's, that's, that, that's what I think about, 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 uh, testing. One of the things that, that you've kind of been a champion of is this up and coming kind of reproductive technology space, right? Can you tell me like a little bit more about like why this is exciting, why people should, should care I'm not in a position where like, I'm like, I'm going to have kids. So like, I don't even think about this. I think a lot of people don't, but 
you're you're in it you're thinking like wow there's so much cool stuff going on here like what are like what people know about the reproductive tech yeah reproductive technology is in my opinion extremely underhyped i think that basically everything in the category of reproductive technology sounds like sci-fi but it's it's actually real so even something as as basic and routine today as uh in vitro fertilization ivf uh it's actually I don't want to say a miracle because maybe that has a religious tone to it, but, you know, 600,000 babies per year are born through IVF today globally. I mean, that's incredible, right? There's 600,000 humans that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, 40 years ago, we developed this techniques to to help infertile people have babies. IVF is is obviously incredible, but here's some other things that, um, you know, sound like sci-fi, but that are actually real. So for example, women who have, you know, issues with their uterus where they can't conceive have actually had a uterus from another woman transplanted into them and they've taken immunosuppressants for over a year so that their um, body doesn't reject that um, foreign uterus. They've, they've used IVF to get to implant a pregnancy and they've carried that pregnancy for nine months, delivered a baby, and then had that uterus transplanted back out of them. So, I mean, that's just incredible. It sounds like that couldn't be, that wouldn't be possible, but that's actually already been done. I think that's actually um, you know, five-year-old technologies is this ability to transplant um, a uterus in and out of a, a woman who wants to uh, carry a child, right? Another really crazy um, advance in reproductive medicine is the idea of the, you know, the, the headline that people like to say is a three-parent baby, but um, more realistically, what's going on is that there's a class of genetic diseases that are mitochondrially inherited. So your mitochondrial DNA comes from, is always from, uh, is, is from your mom. So what they've done is they've taken um, a donor egg and they've sucked out the um, mitochondrial DNA and then they've transferred the DNA from uh, the mother. So basically this, this child actually has DNA from three people. So the sperm that has been contributed by the, the father, the uh, DNA has been co- contributed by the uh, mother, and then the egg donor has actually contributed the mitochondrial DNA that isn't defective that the... Um, that the mother was worried about uh, transferring. What are some of the un- unanswered questions in that space and things that you would want to see? It's like, what are some of the things that like have not yet been solved? So I think that the biggest thing that hasn't been solved right now in IVF is, is the accessibility problem right now. It's unfortunately pretty expensive and it's unfortunately pretty artisanal. So basically there hasn't been a huge number of advances since uh, IVF was introduced 40 years ago. So uh, a huge thing that determines the success of, of IVF is the quality of the So essentially how many um, embryos and eggs and sperm have these uh, embryologists manipulated and the, the more fine grain control that they have, sort of the, the better outcome so that's that's obviously great for these like really high volume ivf centers that are doing a lot of a lot of cycles per year but um you know for any new uh center that's coming up being able to uh find these really uh, highly trained embryologists is really going to determine the success of, of each cycle so i think that something that's really interesting that's coming down the pipe is the idea of using automation and roboticization and um AI essentially to uh, be able to segment and select sperm that are going to be more likely to produce a healthy embryo. Basically the idea of kind of making, putting IVF in a box and making it like LASIK, right? You go to LASIK, you go to any ophthalmologist and you have a defined set, uh, a defined way and defined outcomes for, um, you know, how a LASIK machine works. And I think that the idea of 
uh, kind of getting IVF in a box is, is super exciting because then, you know, for all these people who, you know, want to do it for either disease mitigation reasons or for infertility reasons, um, you know, have less uncertainty about, you know, what's actually happening behind the scenes. There's less variability um, between labs about, um, you know, what outcomes are, are going to be possible. So I think that's something that I'm super excited about. Another maybe slightly more sci-fi technology that I'm excited about is the idea of making IVF non-invasive. So currently IVF is, is quote unquote invasive for women because, you know, we, we have to go inject ourselves with these hormones and we have to go then get, get uh, those eggs retrieved that we talked about earlier. So there's this, um, you know, emerging possibility of taking stem cells. So basically taking a fiber, fiberblast or skin cell, directing that into a stem cell. So that, that problem has actually already been solved. So there's something that was discovered called the Yamanaka factor. So basically the transcription factors that allow you to take uh, a somatic or a body cell and, and uh, translate that into a, a pluripotent or stem cell state. So that was, that was a huge development that received a Nobel prize. But basically the step that we have yet to do is to take a stem cell and then uh, direct it to a certain lineage. So basically to take that stem cell that could become any cell, you know, it could become a heart cell, brain cell, and be able to uh, figure out, okay, how do we direct this to a certain state. So the state that would be most relevant for IVF is the ability to direct uh, a skin cell into becoming a sperm cell or be, to becoming an egg cell. Yeah, so I think that's that's something that um, for whatever reason is, is actually uh, contentious and the, the government won't fund it. So you, you have to get, so a lot of these labs that are working on it have to get um, private funding to pursue that type of research. But um, I think it's, it's a really exciting possibility so that um, you know, basically that, that would allow same-sex couples to have children that would allow uh, much older women to have, have children who, you know, maybe didn't freeze their eggs um, earlier when they were um, higher quality. So that's unfortunately not something that we're going to be seeing in the next you know, few years, but maybe in a decade or two decades. I'm optimistic that, that that technology will come to term. In terms of kind of exciting features and stuff that's, that's a bit further out, outside of the work you're doing at ORCID and the reproductive tech space, like what, what excites you about the future? Talk about the world you want to be living in in like 2050. I mean, I think we've made a lot of uh, progress on um, on bits. I think we've made a little bit of less progress on atoms. So I think I'm super excited about obviously what's going on at Neuralink. Um, anything Elon Elon touches is obviously. Uh, super exciting, but but basically the idea of, you know, faster transportation, like, you know, obviously it's cool to go to Mars, but wouldn't it be cool to see infrastructure in the U.S. that, uh, you know, far surpass what's going on in uh, in Japan in terms of, you know, high-speed rail? Wouldn't it be cool if we were just, you know, drastically more connected where, you know, it didn't take, you know, six hours to get to, uh, from New York to San Francisco, what if it could take two hours or one hour? Basically the idea of like spending less time in traffic, the idea that, um, Basically, people get to spend more time doing what they what they love as opposed to kind of getting getting lost in, in minutia. So, yeah, I think infrastructure and, and cities are, are super exciting. Um, I obviously think the whole space of uh, biotech and, and um, uh, genetic engineering is, is, is super exciting. The, the idea that people get to actually extend their health span. So instead of just putting up with the idea that we're going to degrade uh, progressively throughout our lives, that we actually can sort of proactively um, extend the period of life that we live without disease. Um, obviously, you know, ORCID is one angle at that, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to negate it that I'm super excited about, um, you know, therapies that people are d- developing, whether that's gene therapies or drugs or, uh, you know, whatever we can do to, to preserve the number of years that we, that we live uh, uninterrupted by disease. Um, I think what else is, is super exciting. Yeah. I also, I also think that a, a lot of this work around, um, like artificial 
mates were cool, right? The idea that you could more, um, I think you I'm sure you had, had guests on here who've already talked about the idea that raising a cow is actually like a huge, um, huge lift, not only from an economic perspective, but on the environment and the idea that, okay, we can still have, have steaks, but they're just generated in a lab. Um, so yeah, I think all of these like technologies that make the world more sustainable are sorely needed and yeah so I, I don't know I guess I would say is like if you're listening to this I would encourage you to like take on uh, a problem in atoms right like try and solve something that um, you know makes the world more sustainable that helps people you know live healthier lives something that actually touches the physical world and obviously that, that it's, it's kind of ironic right because my background's in uh, software engineering so I've, I've, I've been moving a lot of bits around but um, you know you, you always sort of admire the people who are, who are doing things in the physical world. Where can people find you and how can they support you and ORCID? If you're interested in uh, getting early access to ORCID's reports, we're at orchidhealth.com. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at, at ORCID Inc. Cool. Nora, this is fantastic. As always, uh, great chatting with you and yeah, excited for the future you are building at ORCID. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey, and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.